0: Andy Solomon is a partner at Material, a venture capital fund and studio uniquely focused on company creation. Before joining Material, Andy was a general partner at Atomic Labs, a San Francisco-based venture capital firm. While there, Andy was a co-founding investor and advisor to several technology-driven, operationally intensive startups, including Hims, Terminal, Bungalow Living, and others which together represent over one billion of enterprise value created from a $10 million investment fund. Prior to that, Andy was a venture capital investor with First Round Capital's dorm room fund, a senior manager at hedge fund Bridgewater Associates, and an expeditionary combat officer in the US Navy. He holds an AB in economics from Harvard University and pursued an MBA at Wharton prior to leaving to found one of his previous ventures. Andy, welcome to Frontline Founders, a podcast that showcases military veterans who've gone on to success as founders and builders of technology companies. Awesome, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Andy, as we get started here, before we trace back to your military service and and then your career path, could you tell us what you do today as a partner at Material, in your own words? Yeah, sure. So
1: um, Material is basically... uh, a three-person band
0: um, and
1: this kind of venture studio concept means that everything that we are investing in, we are founding um, from scratch and so I lead a lot of our um, new company development work you know, which is essentially a um, research and diligence function, uh, helping us discover the opportunities that we're going to invest in um, and that means sort of Founding two to three new companies a year and all of the work um, you know that that entails
0: right well that sounds uh so it sounds like a good mix of of fun and a heck of a lot of work uh, we'll we'll loop back to material and the startup studio venture studio model which is is Something that that you are really um, an an expert on here, Andy. Before we loop back to that, um, let, let, let's trace through your your career path. And I'd love to start with briefly, you know, wh- where you grew up and and that initial call to serve.
1: Yeah, sure. So I um, grew up outside Philadelphia, um, kind of Philly suburbs, and um, you know the story starts kind of one click. Um, further back, my son of immigrants, basically my my dad and his family had uh, immigrated to the US in the late 50s, kind of escaping um, the Soviet occupation in Poland. And kind of true immigrant story, you know, like one suitcase mm. didn't speak the language. Um, my grandfather you know sw- swept floors in a factory, um, you know, sort of thing. And in a generation, Um, you know, through emphasizing education and work and, and these sort of things, um, had provided just an incredible set of opportunities for, you know, my, my dad and then myself, um, you know, and similar story on, um, my mom's side. And when, you know, I basically 9-11 happened, um, and I was, you know, in my senior year in high school, the idea, um, and sort of desire and, and maybe even a feeling of obligation to serve sort of crystallized, you know, just became a thing that I was really um, dead set on, on doing. I think I like briefly considered dropping out of high school and signing up for the Marines the next day, you know, sort of thing, which is, you know, more, more testosterone than common sense. Um, and, you know, was supportively coached um, by, by my parents about the opportunity to, you know, kind of go more um, a college path and, and pursue becoming an officer, um, and you know, and there was that, and then and then there's the other side of it, which is that I probably watched Top Gun seventy five times as a kid, and so you know, maybe it was maybe it had nothing to do with the other stuff. Um, yeah, but that was probably you know the biggest piece of the drive.
0: Right, right, and and that was a a, a defining moment for for many people who today are, are in the tech world, but had served in the military, this, this nine eleven moment, and the reversal of, of the, the end of history. So, um, I think a, a lot of people can, can, can relate to that. And, and thanks for sharing the, the, the stories of those grandfather immigrating, you know, escaping, um, Soviet occupation. So, um, Thanks, Andy. Before you entered the Navy as an officer, from from what I understand, mm-hmm. you you did uh, serve in a, a, a naval ROTC unit. Can, can you talk about? Can you talk about that that experience? So sure. It's, it's post 9-11, Shortly thereafter, you get to college. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, right, what were those years I, like before?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the the quick version is um, that I went to Harvard and studied economics, but. Um, I was spending, you know, sort of the vast majority of my time, um, you know, doing doing two other things. One, I was playing lacrosse um, through college, and two, I did ROTC. So, you know, obviously, people take different paths um, into the officer corps, and and my path was um, the Navy ROTC program, which at that point wasn't actually on campus um, at Harvard through a whole series of, of events that has since been corrected, um, and. You know, kind of was a character building experience of, of truly 5 a.m. bike rides from one end of Cambridge to the other um, in the snow to go do ROTC at MIT, which was also awesome because I, I did some computer science classes and some engineering um, classes at MIT. And so it was like in my daytime, kids were twice as smart as me. And in the morning hours, kids were five times as smart as me. And so um, there was a lot of character building. Um, you know through all of that, when i you know graduated with this degree in economics, I immediately put that on the shelf and and the next day commissioned
0: into the navy um and you know and got that you know quote unquote career started right and uh and and that did make your your college years different maybe than 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 some of your peers in that you had the 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 sport lacrosse plus the uh for for a college student especially the the very early wake up calls is you as you say character building. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the euphemism and, that is most suited now. <laughs> right right. And uh and you commissioned into the Navy, you know, when you graduated Harvard in in 06. In could you could you walk us through some of your assignments in the Navy uh which which I think are you know, may, may, maybe a little unique for for a naval officer in in the years that you did serve. Sure. What, what was your MOS, military occupational specialty, when when uh, you first got into the Navy? And, and walk us through that that half decade or so um, of, of of naval service. Maybe hit hit a couple of the highlights of your assignments. Yeah, for sure. No,
1: so I spent almost six years um, active duty. Um, the lion's share of that time was as a riverine officer, which uh, the Navy Riverines was um, a unit that the Navy decided to take back on during uh, the combat operations in Iraq, basically, um, because there were, there are several waterways and rivers that bisect and dissect the country. And um, there was a mission set that had been being fulfilled in the early days by the um, Marine special operations mostly. And the Navy kind of looked at it and said, Hey, this is the kind of stuff that we did in Vietnam. Um, and we could, you know, dust off those, um, you know, protocols and do it again and, and kind of reinvigorated this riverine unit that had been, um, you know, dead essentially since the Vietnam days. Hmm. I was one of the earliest, um, junior officers kind of, uh, joining that. You know, MOS, as you put it, it was a um, particularly difficult, you know, billet to get. My my first eighteen months in the Navy were on board um, a ship doing counter drug operations in um, South and Central America, kind of leading a vessel boarding um, search and seizure team there, which also has tons of awesome, you know, bar stories and, and stuff. But for me, was a you know time of I kind of like focus and hacking um, to figure out how to get to what I wanted to do, which was this thing I was hearing rumors about,
0: this restarting of this riverine community. Was your initial uh, MOS as a surface warfare officer then when you first joined the Navy? Yeah, it was. So yeah, so my
1: um, yeah first assignment was on a ship and that was a uh, surface warfare, you know, sort of path and when, when I say hacking, um, for surface warfare officers, after your first two years or so, um, you get into this lottery for kind of your next assignment. You know, like all great bureaucracies have, there is kind of definitions and, and milestones, you know, that you can meet. Um, and in fact, what I learned was that in this lottery system, there was um, a hierarchy of who would get to pick their next assignment, you know, sort of earliest. And, um, one of the things that was the factor in that was your date of commission. And, and if you come out of ROTC, you just can't compete on date of commission with, um, the Academy which commissions that a day earlier technically, but, um, on all these other milestones, you could be kind of the, the master of your own destiny. And so in the surface warfare path, there are these things called, um, Becoming a officer of the deck and, and learning how to drive the ship, um, getting a qualification to run the engineering plant, um, of the ship, um, getting this surface warfare, uh, designation itself, which, which, you know, has some schooling and some courses and some work. And then, um, this one qualification called a tactical action qualification where you would be fighting the ship were you to be in a combat situation. And you know, this full course of um qualifications is like typically the sort of thing that a surface warfare officer would get around I don't know, maybe year six, year eight of um of being an officer. And what I kind of learned in this like hack was like there was nothing set in stone about how quickly you could move through these things if you had the support of your commanding officer and you know the other officers in the boardroom, and so um, I got the, these four qualifications in the first eighteen months, and um, got them to put me in the lottery a, a few months ahead of um, where I otherwise would have been, and you know kind of because of that, I think I had I don't know maybe the second or third choice you know, the whole class of, of people getting these next assignments. And so I picked Riverines and I got Riverines. Um, and that was awesome because that kind of defined, um, you know, the
0: next four or five years of my life. Right. Right. And, and we're worth noting briefly that you, you had to take, you, you had to go figure it out within this, uh, within this, you know, I mean, the, the military and the military service branches are are built the way they're built for 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 a reason and that leads to a lot of good outcomes and obviously some some frustrating ones um, when you how did you how did you, let, let's take a minute and, and just talk about how you figured out that you could go get these qualifications like did you just ask around I'm, I'm guessing that wasn't told to you as you, navigated right. how to put yourself in the best position to to get that riverine designator.
1: Yeah, I mean so so you're so right on you know both of these pieces. The system is designed to keep the entire organization working. And it really does. I mean it really, you know, as we know and, and I'm sure many of your listeners, you know, know all about this is an incredibly high performing organization in a number of different ways. But Because it's so big, because there's so many people coming from so many different, you know, places of the country and experiences and these sorts of things, it has to function by sort of a set of rules. And, you know, I'll tell you two things. Like one, I I ultimately had an incredible like organ body rejection with bureaucracy. Like I, I hate it. Like I absolutely can't stand it. It feels like oppressive um, to me and I desperately wanted to get away from it um you, you know but in in the military there are places to gravitate towards that have relatively less of that you know for sure and those are the the you know sort of more special operations types communities small mission um uh, operation sets and finding that out you know like with kind of all bureaucracies and and eventually at some point you know we'll talk about startups and this translates like perfectly but like you can't rely on word of mouth because word of mouth, you're going to get, you know, something like a common denominator and you have to actually go to the text to figure out what the real rules are. And I, I've, I mean, you know, i this is a terrible thing to say, but like I've always wanted to break the rules with knowing the rules in mind. Um, and I remember, you know, just like really going and reading the, the the literal documentation of what the surface warfare officer career progression you know was going to be and the fine detail of, of how you get each of these you know things and, and the fine detail of what ranks you hire in this ability to pick your things and just realize that there was Unlike almost everything else in the military, where um, time in service or time in rank is so dictating, this particular set of qualifications had no time element, you know, to it. Um, it had time suggestions. It had a time endpoint. If you haven't gotten X, Y, Z by year eight or twelve or sixteen, um, in some cases, you know, then there were repercussions that were going to happen. But there was no bottom rung. To, um, you know, to that timepiece.
0: Well, good, good for you for getting, uh, getting that riverine designator. And and Andy, let, let, let's talk for for a little bit here. You know, before we transition to your your post military career and uh, and and everything, just about a, a couple of the highlights. And and I know there are many, but but of that time, um, in in the riverine unit and and deploying um, in, in this pretty unique situation that, that you found yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so first of all, the, certainly the most amazing cultural experience of my life to this point um, in in two ways. One, a cultural experience of deploying to Iraq, which is mainly where I uh, uh, deployed to. So first in the Western part of the country in one deployment, um, kind of uh, the Fallujah Ramadi um, area of Al Ambar, and then later to southern Iraq to um, Basra and and kind of the the al Arab, which is the waterway that separates Iraq and Iran, um, which I can talk about in a second. But but the so so incredible cultural experience in terms of that world and working very closely with um, I, Iraqi uh, both kind of police SWAT forces as well as uh, Iraqi. Uh, military special operations groups who were going to take over that mission set but also an incredible cultural experience in terms of the the members of our unit and where they had come from uh, you know across across our country which was just so spectacular and so amazing and you know just eye-opening um for you know somebody who had who had seen the things that I had in college and high school and, and then learn from them about the things that they saw. And, and so, you know, saw these incredibly high performing, um, whip smart, like just go getter people, you know, there was that overarching thing. Um, and then in terms of like particular experiences, um, the Iraq deployments were, um, you know like I'm sure a lot of people that that you know can relate to but we were doing um you know operational missions you know all obviously outside the wire and, and most of this would be um on board a small set of river boats um that had these you know flat bottom hulls that could go um anywhere in, in the shallow depth with these like really sweet jet engines and um dual 50 cals uh with you know maybe a handful of other um armaments on the back and um you know kind of flying up and down the rivers sometimes in the middle of night and and sometimes during the day and sometimes training and sometimes um uh, doing more interdiction type operations and you know this was like 2008, 2009, so late, but like you know, deep in the heart of the the kind of counterinsurgency, so it was a really interesting operational set where um, some of it was combat oriented, some of it was um, sort of smuggling and insurgency oriented, and especially being um, on the Iranian border, there was just an incredible amount of things going on and and a really complicated, you know, set of of politics and operations, kind of like meeting each other it was also. Um, at the moment when Iraq was conducting um, a very important election, um, and so there was just a, a number of awesome things.
0: What a, uh, I mean, what 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 an experience and terrific way to to re- round out uh, the 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 earlier years uh, as as a Navy officer in this post 9 11 2006 to two thousand eleven timeframe, Andy as you left the navy with all this broad tactical and cultural experience how did you think about what came next and and what was that decision making process yeah. right out of the navy it was a really
1: complicated decision making process to be honest i i really thought about making the military more of a career um, you know, for myself, I, I had found a path that I wanted to go on, which interestingly was to, to leave the Navy and, you know, to spare you all the detail, but there was this thing called a blue to green program where you would go in to the army and, and I had a, um, application set into, to, to, uh, army special forces qualification, um, sort of path and had done my language learning and, and had been pretty close to thinking that that was the path, um, I was going to go down. And, and, you know, I think once you, I would be doing that, I'd probably be, you know, committing to another decade-ish, you know, set of, um, you know, sort of things. And so that was really going to form a big part of my, you know, overall career. And I think like, honestly, like a, a personal thing, um, hit me, which was, kind of the incredible tax that that life has on your friends and your family. Um, and for me, you know, my parents um, in particular, and, you know, sort of some, I, I joked about that organ body rejection with, you know, bureaucracy. And I, I was finding this world and this path that had relatively less of that, but it still felt like I was going to be really wanting in this other area of, creativity and learning and deep intellectual stimulation and um, kind of came to terms with believing I could pursue a lot of the same values um, and do it in a different context that it didn't necessarily need to be through um, specific military or even public service, but it could be more done in a private sector um, you know, context. And so I, I then thought, okay, what would I do um, in the outside world. And I uh, thought uh, about starting a um, company and, you know, because of what I kind of knew at that point, you know, thought it was going to be this kind of um, defense contracting kind of thing. And and anyway, after a little bit of wiggling was by total happenstance um, introduced to like a hedge fund of all things, you know, the furthest thing on my radar. Um, in the woods in Connecticut called Bridgewater Associates. And it was like total happenstance. It was my my college roommate's older sister happened to be a uh, executive recruiter for them and kind of said like, listen, there's this one place that would recruit somebody that isn't coming from financial services to come work at a hedge fund. And like, they're almost as nutty and crazy as you are. So maybe it'll be a perfect fit. Um to nice. and um told me about it and and I, I I don't think you know so so Bridgewater's founder is this guy Ray Dalio and his his public um reputation has really expanded in the past couple of years. So I think a lot of people do know him and know his principles and and some about the culture at the company. At, at this point, a lot of that wasn't yet so formalized and so uh, articulated but there was a mission statement and i read i remember reading the mission statement i couldn't like quote it word for word but i remember this one element to it which was basically you know totally paraphrasing but like feel free to call your boss an idiot as long as you have some um you know thinking behind it and i just thought about all of these you know meetings that i had sat in you know just desperately wanting to tell somebody that i thought they were an idiot for you know a, B through J reasons and, um, was like, holy smokes, this is the place, you know, for me. And so, um, between that and then, and then getting to know the people and just being so wowed by the the caliber of thinking and thoughtfulness and horsepower that um, I wanted to be there. And so in any case, that was where I found myself, um, the, I, I left the Navy active duty on a Friday and I started at Bridgewater on a Monday um, and you know, dove into it and I ended up spending um, three years and change um, there. It was a fantastic experience. I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit. Like Certainly the best piece of it was that I met my wife um, who was also working there Like two or three weeks into um, starting. But on the professional side, I i mean, I didn't know my ass from my elbow as far as the business world was concerned. I had college roommates who were consultants and bankers and in private equity or this or that. And I would, you know, nod and smile at like a party as though I knew what those things were. But in reality, I just had no idea how this business world um, sort of functioned and came together. And, and it turned out that Bridgewater was a wonderful place to learn not just how um, a private sector company might work, which Bridgewater is an odd example of, um, but also how the business world works and how a bit of the economic um, system and markets works. It was an incredible um, angle in that sense. I spent my first year um, in what now I think would be called kind of like a chief of staff sort of role to um, an amazing a guy named Brian Kreider, uh, who was taking over their research department, and it was a job for everything from you know grabbing coffee and shuffling papers to um, joining meetings and seeing how the firm's management committee and and chief investment officers made decisions, and it just had this like incredible osmotic um, year of being around you know, people like that. And, and for what it's worth, it is a, a path, these kind of like chief of staff type opportunities that I think are fantastic um, for a lot of different people, but especially for military people. And in any case, for me, led to the opportunity to um, build out my own team within um, the firm's research group. Ultimately, it connected our research operations, which which Bridgewater's very humble goal is to uh, attempt to understand the world uh, in an economic sense, <laughs> right? and that's what this research group does. Uh, a second part of the firm, which is their client service group, which, in my opinion, is uh, sort of the the highest performing and highest functioning um, client engagement group in asset management. And I, you know, had these functions that were some specialized data analytics, some light tech product development. Um, and almost a publishing function um, for the firm's communications with their investor group, um, kind of in my purview. And it was, you know, not unlike um, the Riverains, it was an opportunity to start and build and do something small in a broader context, which I think was for me training some of these muscles and satiating some of um, what I ultimately recognized as as kind of a more entrepreneurial um, you know sort of streak. And, uh, and and in any case, so that was how Bridgewater right. went, but I also was rapidly um, learning to like the uh, Westport, Connecticut comfy lifestyle um, of working at a hedge fund and and decided I wanted to be creating. Um, things more directly, and so mm-hmm. left after um, three years. Decided the right way to to make my um, way towards earlier stage work, whether that was going to be investing or, or founding,
0: was through a business school program. Um, and so I left to do right. that. For what you were looking for, as you left the service, Bridgewater certainly seems like it delivered, and and is a unique place, as you said. Um, Ray Dalio, who's always been well known, has, has really his public profile is is much higher these these last couple of years due to due to some of the things he's published and what an experience and, and Andy in, in many ways that three years at three plus years at, at Bridgewater gave you a, a very a, almost like a like a graduate degree right uh, or you certainly learned, learned a lot about a lot of things uh, while you were there. And, and understand the, the, the seeds that were grown for your your time um, more on the, the company creation side. So talk us through your now journey as a, a founder and builder of tech companies, which is by its nature, given what material and, and atomic do, um, very different than, than a typical tech uh, entrepreneur um, and different than what a typical venture capitalist does. So, really interested to hear what 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 Wharton was like, the dorm room fund, and how you fell into that, and and then maybe um, how how it how it came to be to 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 go to a a venture studio. Totally. Um, I'm sure that 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 path was was fairly um, organic.
1: First, what I definitely should you know preface this with is. My MBA experience was such an odd one because I was a bit older um, I was engaged at this point. I, you know, so I wasn't your like, you know, typical in a lot of different ways, you know, person. And I also ended up dropping out after the first year. So I will talk about my MBA experience and like, you know, simultaneously say, I'm not sure how applicable all of it is, but um, I loved going to Wharton. I mean I wanted to go to Wharton. It was back in Philadelphia. It's where my family um was. I hadn't, you know, really been around them for a decade. So there was a lot of personal, you know, reasons to be there in particular. And then um I spent my time you, you know again maybe returning a little bit to that hack concept. I wanted to find the things that you know were going to be like accelerants in a lot of ways. Um, and so Unlike my undergrad days, I also like fell in love with the actual coursework and enjoyed that sort of piece of it. But outside of that, I um, helped a, a, a guy who was a year ahead of me um, start a fintech company that he was, um, you know, passionate about, and and got this really interesting um, year of experience seeing how a how a literal company goes from an idea in a person's head to out in the world. Um, I like totally hoodwinked the, um, first round capital team and dorm room fund team into like letting this person with zero venture experience or knowledge, um, hang out long enough to be a part of of the team and then direct that Philadelphia, um, office. And, um, and then three, I undertook a, um, an independent study, which I think is like the best uh, hack in business school, um, Mm-hmm. And the independent study was basically this venture studio or lab context. It was a new thing. It didn't really it didn't have a name. It didn't really have uh, a strong reputation around it. Um, and I, in the guise of thinking about how would the University of Pennsylvania do something like this if they were to, went out and studied the world of of business models that were starting new companies. And so whether this was um it, you, Something historical like Bell Labs or Xerox Park or um, Rocket Internet in Europe or Idea Lab in Pasadena in the nineties, um, or even more you know recent models. How these things sort of worked, and it was like the most incredible calling card mm. to talk to people who really knew about things that I like really wanted to learn about. And that's why it's, you know, such a great hack for B-School is because you're getting this credit to like really learn about something that you care about, um, you know, deeply. And I will, you know, talk about what that turned into in one second, but like, I'll just mention this one other thing, which like I had at this point learned this incredible lesson, which was, um, you know, I had, I had tried to find these like, outside the box hacks, like the non, you know, even in the context of the organizations I was a part of. um, And I had thought of them as this like, you know, personal like or Stepping Stone and what they actually really ended up being were these incredible opportunities to interact with people. And, you know, one thing I didn't mention in the Wolverine, you know, world was, was there was this opportunity to kind of like raise your hand to go and, Leave the, the operating base that our group was on and take a small team, um, and build out a new base with an Iraqi unit, um, in Basra and essentially live with these Iraqi units. And so there was, um, there was a couple of NSW teams and, and our team and like sort of reporting to like an Iraqi three star general, you know, daily. And I'm like, I, I might have, I was probably a a, a junior, a lieutenant junior grade at that point, Um, you know, but all of a sudden through, you know, the kind of like raising your hand, trying to do something different at the edges. um, I was like in these conversations that I never would have even known about, you know, previously at at Bridgewater, you know, sort of this opportunity to build out um, this team and to like lead this publication of an investment um, you know, sort of commentary resulted in like multiple meetings weekly with Ray Dalio and, and Greg Jensen and Bob Prince, the, the firm CIOs, like talking to them about, you know, their ideas on the markets, which every other traditional choice I could have made never would have had that. And, and in business school, um, you know, finding the storm room fund opportunity and seeing, you know, Josh Koppelman and, and one of the best teams and venture. Um, you know, operate and think through things just ended up being, like, that's where really the meat of the education was. And I wish I was smart enough to say that I had planned for that. But like, that was the lucky, um, you know, second order effect. And so in this study that I took on um, with this professor, I, you know, would reach out to people and say, hey, I have a, you know, .edu email address. Would you talk to me for a few minutes? And one of the people Right. Um, who I talked to was a guy named Jack Abraham, who himself had um, dropped out of Penn as an undergrad, started a um, successful company that he sold to eBay a couple of years later. And he was doing his next thing or thinking about his next thing, which was starting a venture studio that I had kind of been learning about. And what started as a research call for 15 minutes, you know, kind of turned into me, you know, saying... Well, like, guess what? I'll, I'll I'll actually be out in San Francisco uh, next week. Like, maybe I could pop by for uh, breakfast, and um, you know, he right. said, "Oh, sure, yeah. Like, why not?" You know. So then I immediately booked a plane ticket to to be out there. You know, the next week, um, and showed up, and you know, had made these like elaborate diagrams on a you know piece of scrap paper about how I thought a venture studio must work, and you know, he kind of humored that and you know, and, and ended up basically letting me come and hang out in a corner, um, for the summer. And that turned six months later into becoming a partner, um, in the firm. And, uh, you know, that was the path of, of deciding to drop out of, um, B school and my wife and I were married, um, that summer. And so put our entire East coast life and presence. on, like, you know, I mean, just she's the one who obviously deserves uh, the credit in this story for the flexibility and support of um, of going along with this like insane plan, right? And and and
0: just so so while at business school, yeah. um, m- many many people um, a- at these top business schools, I would say particularly uh, people who've who've been in the military would gravitate towards recruiting, sure. and that means typically management consulting and banking, yeah. right? Um, yeah. You, you you carved a a different path how did you did, you know it, it sounds like you got just got really deep in in this venture studio that being a, a real interest of yours how did 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 you even pay attention to these traditional paths or do you think um the those just didn't even cross your radar such that when it came time to think about what to do over the summer um You had the 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 opportunity to then go start what what is now Andy Ben the last six years of your life, which is being a partner first at Atomic, now Material on the the venture studio, the company creation path.
1: Yeah, so I made um, the choice not to explore those other um, you know things and again, part of it, like, remember this, you know, rejection of bureaucracy piece. Like I knew I didn't want to work at a big company, but I had also identified this other thing. And and in terms of an accelerant or a hack, you know, I learned that if you want to be, if you want to get outsized returns, you know, sort of put this in sort of financial concepts, so if you want to get outsized returns, you need to bring, you know, something to the table that you're going to trade now. For returns later, and the things that you can trade, you know, now for returns later are one some element of your human capital, some incredible skill or ability, um, you know, that you have. Another thing that you could, you know, trade is is financial capital, some financial capital that you have now, you know, that somebody else wants or needs that is going to provide, you know, sort of a return for you, and. Um, I didn't have these things. Like I didn't have, you know, and I do think that this is a um, thing for people in the military, like especially officers, you don't have a specific skill relative to your peers, you know, who have learned the discipline of marketing or um, financial management or product management or a handful of other things. You have these like generalized, um, you know, skills, which can don't get me wrong, and I I say this in a non-critical, like a non-judgmental, it wasn't right for me, but a non-judgmental way, which is that these general skills can absolutely be traded for excellent long-term, you know, returns, um, but they're sort of generalized, you you know, returns. There are paths to turn that generalized skill set through a consulting career, through a banking career into excellent, excellent, you know, careers. Um, Right. You know, but I, but I lacked this precise skill, um, to trade. I I didn't have like this pool of money that I was sitting on that I could, you know, invest and turn into returns. But I realized that there was this third thing that you could trade, which was your ability to tolerate ambiguity. And, Ah. uh, you know, you could call that risk, risk seeking. Um, you know, we can, we can delve into that, you know, more as we go, but, I had learned that I could tolerate risk and uncertainty and um, rapidly changing uncertain situations. And I do think that this is a thing that that many people in the military um, have learned. And if you can sit with that risk to not do the common thing, you can find opportunities that have outsized returns um, available to them. But you have to tolerate that kind of risk profile. And so for me, the decision was I'm not going to do this, you know, sort of short path thing. Um I'm going to try to trade my risk tolerance for something that'll be, you know, both fun and, and awesome and enjoyable, but you're potentially incredibly rewarding in terms of career success at right. some point. Um, you know, and right. The, I say all that because that really was um, my position on it. But there's there's a second thing that I realized post business school, uh, you know, about business school in particular. It doesn't have to be in business school, and I think it's amazingly applicable to people leaving the military. Which is that the ability to fashion yourself as a expert in a particular niche area takes so much less time than anybody could ever imagine. And so if you, you, it can't be something so broad as, um, you know, uh, e-commerce or uh, healthcare or something like that. So, you know, even those would probably work to be totally honest with you. But like, if you pick something niche enough, you in the space of a year, much less two years can become an incredibly sought-after person that is associated with that thing. I, I, I'll, you know, share a quick story about a friend who also was a vet in business school, um, who had served on submarines and founded a fintech club at Wharton, which hadn't existed previously. And in the space of those two years of business school, wasn't known as the military vet or the submarine guy. He was the fintech, you know, guy, and and. Had this ability to network and meet and you know ultimately work with um, people in the fintech world, which was an emerging niche at that uh, you know point, and it didn't take him a decade long you know career set of working with fifty clients right. in that space to you know to learn it and carve that out. And anyway, I had a bit of that around the studio thing, so. Um, you you know, probably longer than you asked for but
0: no that's that this is really important stuff and I think a couple couple very helpful things came out of that um, one becoming an expert in a niche takes less time than you think a, a real niche right I mean really? and uh, and 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 built up building on that you can be the the thing you want to go become and be the head of the fintech club or the founder of the fintech club at, at Wharton which you know, often people think of as, as very related to finance. So amazing that he uh, he was able to transition from um, being known as as a the the military guy to um, the the fintech person. And and the other is what you can trade for future returns. Just thinking about that, very interesting. And and I think that that third lever, right? There's either you have money to invest or you have a special skill. But that third lever of ability to tolerate ambiguity and not get, I mean, we all get stressed, but not, you know, to, to, to do that um, well is, is truly an advantage that those who've served in the military enlisted or officer um, really can, can bring to the table. And, And that also helps us understand if you believe that becoming an expert in a niche takes less time than you think, it can make sense why you Andy have, have, Chosen the 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 career path that you have over this last um, this last six years. So um, you know as, as 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 we as we move towards wrapping up here in 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 a few minutes, would love to to dig into both some of your experiences at at the venture studio as well as um, you know what what you're alluding to here, which is that that sort of risk seeking behavior and and some of the positive and negative outcomes therein. So, so maybe we dig into that risk, that kind of risk seeking behavior, and then we'll hit, um, what a venture studio actually really does. And, and some of the companies you, you you've helped create yeah. at atomic and, and, and material, but, but let's hit the risk loving. Yeah. What, 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 what does that mean? Exactly. Why has that been helpful or harmful as a military veteran, uh, military officer, and as a um, entrepreneur, Andy.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and like I, the one thing I will say about venture studios to frame you know this up as we talk about this with risk is the nature of a venture studio is that it is starting new companies continuously, and so it is constantly involved in the first. 12 to 18 months of a new company, which is, you know, the highest attrition period of, you know, those companies. And in a lot of ways, the highest stress, the, running a company at any stage is, is wildly stressful. But because of the um, existential risk to the business in that time period, it's a very like fraught time for founders. And so, like, even you just think about the nature of constantly putting yourself in that first year or so of new companies as like an act of choice is kind of a masochistic one. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, so first of all, let, let me just describe it by the outcome of it, which is, um, a pretty tremendous, like mental health toll, um, of, you know, this sort of, uh, behavior. And it's, it's the sort of thing that like only kind of more recently, like in the last year to two, um, that I dealt with personally, like in a more explicit and proactive way. Um, which I'll just say like is, is through working with a therapist who, who is a psychologist who, you know, works with me and, you know, she is, she's both a a career coach, but she's a therapist. Um, and has helped me understand, you know, a Just a a lot of things, you know. Not least of which is that I've had incredible untreated ADHD my whole life, which also has a big (laughs) uh, bearing on a lot of the choices I've made and, and things I enjoy doing. But but like my pattern of behaviors was not to just join the military, but to join the military and then like you know try to find the most adventurous, you know, youngest, newest unit that I could. Not just to go to um, a place like Bridgewater, which you know, like seventy percent of the people leave after the first six months or something um, like that, because it's such a wild place. But like you know, then to try to start a new team within you know Bridgewater to to migrate towards um, to migrate towards startups to not go recruiting to like you know then in the world of venture go to this new niche in venture. Like I, I I have a pattern of you know seeking these edges. And yeah, like the, the fun and rational way to talk about it is about treating risk and ambiguity for um, returns. But the, the effect of it is to have continuously put myself in a physiological place of high stress. And so, you know, there, there really is, um, you know, and, and related to some of the military time, but like a, a PTSD component, to my mental health, and and um, has been an incredible, uh, you know, frankly, journey over the last couple of years of untangling and understanding that, and finding, you know, mechanisms, exercises, practices um, to put a lot of this in context and and to kind of like handle um, a lot of it, which is interesting. I, I wish that I had dealt with some of these things more explicitly, more proactively earlier, because I see kind of now that like, you know, like these exercises. So meditation is probably one of the ones that a lot of people, you know, sort of have heard about or tried or gravitate to for somebody with, you know, this like high ADD uh, sort of component medications, like a really hard one, you know, for me, but I, I, Every once in a while I return to it and like try, but practices like that, which are, you know, kind of about mindfulness about presence, um, are not only kind of helpful because they sort of de-stress and they sort of lower some anxiety and, and have the physical positive effects, but they also have these like performance positive effects, um, hmm. which I heard people allude to, like, again, you, you know, you, We both mentioned Ray Dalio and he sort of famously touts um, the role of meditation that it's played in his life. Um, And I, I didn't understand that. I mean, maybe I just wasn't smart enough to understand that until I felt it, but there's an incredible tie when you're trying to do creative, complex endeavors and operating as close to like your personal peak as you can. And so much of um, the results, like just the, the, the buildup, like you, you know, almost like silt builds up at, at the mouth of a river. There is this like buildup over time that stress sort of like puts on you and clouds, yeah. clouds your thinking and clouds your decision-making and clouds your problem solving and clouds your, you know, interpersonal interactions with your friends and family and business colleagues and, um, you know, dealing with those things in a more um, first order way has just been like, you know, incredible uh, again, in both, both the performance.
0: Yeah. And, And Andy, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. And as, as you keyed in on one of the really unique, ways a military veteran can succeed in early stage startups building tech companies is that ability to, to tolerate ambiguity. Um, you, you've highlighted the, the darker side here, that, that it, you need to realize that this repeated putting oneself in high-stress situations can lead to some, some a, a, at the least, stress and anxiety and, and, and sometimes more serious mental health issues. You know you said earlier um you didn't see the need for it or it, it didn't hit home to you earlier and you wished it had which probably would have made you I mean you've been very successful could could have you know made you even 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 a better performer in these high stress situations um you know re- reflecting on it now why why did it take i guess so long to to find this person who's a a career coach slash therapist, like what, what was missing from um, deciding to do that earlier in your, in your uh, career? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's just, it's, thank you for asking the question. It's, It's an awesome one and it is such an easy one to answer. It's like, it's just ego. It's just arrogance. You know, maybe some of it is knowledge. Like I'll, I'll, you know, say that a bit, but like the thing that I'll liken it to is, you know, picture like a 1930s bodybuilder, like, you know, in in some like old black and white, like cartoon and and they're like, you know, like lifting this kind of like barbell weight over their head and then they're putting it down and they're like smoking a cigarette and going back like, you know, to, to the rest of their life and then lifting this like barbell up again or whatever it is versus like a bodybuilder today, which like, you know, lifts and then goes into the ice bath and then like stretches, and like does yoga and has a masseuse because that is about, you know, how you, the science of treating your muscles and helping them recuperate, you know, in the most effective way. And like for what it's worth, like in a literal sense and a non-metaphorical sense, like we know this as athletes. We know this as, um, you know, Military, you know, war fighters or whatever. Like we, you know, we know that these are the types of physical activities that we use to operate physically. And in a mental way, I, uh, you know, I won't speak for others, But like I thought, I have this ability to handle stress. I have trained myself, you know, and I was doing the like mental version of like lifting up a weight and then smoking a cigarette, like. I wasn't treating my brain and, and you know, my like feelings and emotions in that same scientific way of what is the way to get highest performance. It's, it's not to pretend like you don't need to really think about, you know, stressing it and then relaxing it and helping it recuperate and, you know, contextualizing things. And You know, these practices that that have, you know, both become in vogue, but probably have become cliche too. Like that is what they do. Like that is what becoming present, like being mindful, using meditation, if that does work for you, like, or or doing physical things, yoga and and like what they do for you is like an ice bath for your muscles. Um, And so part of that was learning, um, you know, that for myself and learning that context. And then part of that was like acknowledging that, not some like, you know, special thing that doesn't need that type of treatment to achieve better performance.
0: Right. And then the, the, the the parallels are great because the, the modern athlete, as you say, doesn't finish their barbell lifting and, and go break out a, a pack of cigarettes. Instead, that person takes a nice bath does does cross training um and 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 so too with with one's mental state um and and the the brain you know the the more we learn about human performance um the the more clear it is that better performance will result from from doing the the rest of it so sure. that that is uh the these are such important points and as as we move towards wrapping up here, would love for you to spend a couple minutes just riffing on however you would like what, what venture studios yeah. do, uh, what you have done, you know, whether it's at atomic or now at material for the last couple of years. Um, so some, some, some company building yeah. and, and, and then at the very end, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap with some of the, the military lessons uh, to, to entrepreneurship, but, but we'd love to hear about uh, your, your half decade plus at venture studios.
1: Yeah, totally. So I, my, just to give you like a quick you know description on so venture studio um, in what I mean is having a investment fund um, that you use to fund the the real inception and founding of a new company idea. So if you thought about that in the scheme of private company investment at large, where you know growth and private equity is typically much later, and and venture capital is. at you know, kind of early to mid-stages and growth companies, we're at like the very left edge of that, you know, continuum where we are really before day zero of a new company, pre-incorporation, developing an idea, um, identifying the, the themes and market and um, product opportunity and team construction required to sort of go after it. And so my, my concept on that is that um, there are three engines In a venture studio, one is a uh, insight engine, which learns something new about the world and turns that into um, a a business vision and ultimately a product vision for the company. Two is a capital engine, um, which has the ability to fund the startup phase of the business as well as Be the right capital connector and capital planner um, as the company sort of matures and moves towards a series A, B, uh, etc. And and third, a talent engine, which continuously gets better at understanding how to connect um, the right sort of talent with the idea and the market and the product vision and the go to market strategy and make that whole thing um, you know sing together you know in in that particular way I'll mention about the the talent engine piece of it and like I do think that there is something awesome and unique about studios where they f- they end up becoming um, you know kind of a, a anthropomorphized version of a co-founder with a lot of experience and so become like a great co-founder for you um, is someone who has everything it takes to be a great, you know, founding CEO of a company, but, you know, is maybe missing some piece of the experience set or some piece of the network set. And through that, like is a great complementary um, sort of group to, to work with the studio. And, and I think in that way is awesome because it's an on ramp into successful entrepreneurship for more people. Then can typically do it. There's such a high barrier, again, from risk taking um, required that you end up seeing so many of the, um, you know, again, non-critically, but like Y Combinator type of startup entrepreneur who's <clears throat> 22 and can sit uh, can sleep on a couch and eat ramen for three years and you know not worry about whether their their passion idea works out or not because. Um, their opportunity cost risk isn't that high at that point. And so you end up with a lot right. of venture backed founders of that sort of ilk. Um, or you end up with the, the, um, personally privileged in a sort of like wealth aspect, you know, person who can take on that risk for some other reason. And I, and I think that the venture studio path opens up a new, um, you know, door for people who otherwise wouldn't have had it. But in any case, that's kind of my venture studio theory. And then, um, right. you know, through Atomic, we, during my time there, um, founded probably close to uh, 10 companies, um, certainly the most known of which is um, Hims and Hers, which is a health and wellness uh, business that uh, went public um, earlier this year, uh, in January of this year, through a back with um, Oak Tree. Um, beyond that... Uh, bungalow living is a sort of co-living concept for mostly millennials um, to get into like the best and fun uh, neighborhoods and cities and, and get out of their you know parents basement or out of the suburbs and the place they want to be through living with friends and a handful of other you know businesses as well. Terminal is an excellent one that is an outsourced engineering um, group for fast-growing startups. Um, Radiant. Operates in sort of the uh, brick um, and mortar commerce space. So, uh, this handful of awesome, awesome companies and awesome founding um, teams. And, um, you know, to just quickly mention that in 2019, after my wife and I had our, our first daughter, um, we wanted to be back near family on the East Coast. And I co founded Material um, with a guy named Matt Salzberg, um, who had. Uh, himself founded Blue Apron um, and had moved out of an operational role there. Um, we founded Material as a new venture studio and uh, raised a $25 million fund um, with the goal of starting two to three companies a year and uh, have done that for the past couple of years. So we've, we've started four companies um, that are great, have been in- incredible opportunities to work again with um, truly world class entrepreneurs. One, I think by the time this podcast is out, will um, be more announced, which is called Suma. Um, Suma Brands is a um, e- e-commerce seller uh, aggregation platform. So, it, just an absolute world class killer team of e-commerce operators um, who are super well capitalized to. Um, acquire subscale Amazon um, and e-commerce sellers right. um, and plug them into hmm. this just incredible platform to help them um, grow um, led by a guy named Andrew Savage, who's just been this awesome, awesome co-founder uh, to work with. And, and you know, so that's going well. And a couple of our other Right, newer ones are early. Are the others in in stealth mode at this point? Our our most recent one is still in stealth and developing their product. We we funded them two months ago. Um, we at the uh, beginning of this year funded a company um, that isn't like widely uh, announced, but they're out in the market. They're called Level, um, and they're an awesome, awesome company for a growing software and industrial. Uh, companies to kind of land their like dream customer. So what Level helps them do is find the perfect sales advisor to uh, work with to win kind of like that big elephant deal. So to sell into that dream Fortune 50 uh, company, um, Level finds the person that can help understand their product and their opportunity set for that specific buyer. And make the right connections and and guide the sales process um, to success. And so again, that's led by um, a guy named Peter Ekman, um, who who is just another wonderful um, entrepreneur who, you know, maybe wouldn't have started his, um, you know, next company because he's been very successful and has very high opportunity costs. But Level is the company he was put on this planet to build. Like I'll tell you
0: Great. Andy, this, this is terrific. And thanks for sharing both the venture studio theory with the three engines, as well as some of the successes, both from your time at at atomic and and now co-founding and building material with, with what sounds like a great team as, as, as we, as we wrap here, um, would love to hear, you know, just in the last couple minutes, um, you know, given that while our audience is broad, a core of it is, is military veterans and, uh, thinking about what you took from that military time and we have already talked about it in some ways that that put you ahead of as an entrepreneur what you had to work harder or smarter at as you um, took the plunge and 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 uh, joined atomic in the early days and and then started material yourself uh, with, with a partner and have been part of the founding of uh, of it sounds like a, a dozen or more businesses over the last five years which is just a a phenomenal amount. So as as, as we wrap here, Andy, would love your your parting thoughts and 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 words for for veterans contemplating a career either as a founder or builder in 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 the tech world. Totally. And you know, thanks
1: for offering the opportunity. I mean, like if if I was sitting on the other end of the line, I don't think I would put too much stock in um, what I was saying. But you know, for for what it's worth, I'll offer you know a general thought and a and a sort of more military specific thought and. You know, the general thought is the necessity of marrying strategy and tactics, you know, just like building a company, you know, really sitting down and thinking about yourself and your career um, as this product and company that you are building and you have full ownership of and having a strategy in the sense of where you're going to try to get to and then a set of tactics that is directed towards accomplishing that rather than making the next choice that seems best at that sort of moment without the broader, you know, sort of guide, which I I, I do see as a a thing that some people do that ends up resulting in wasted time, um, you know, often, which I think is, you know, kind of the most precious thing, you know, that we have um, for sure. And so I love to coach people towards like, being more self-directed in finding that thing that is going to put them on, on the broader path. And, and even if the decision is, I don't really know exactly what I want my strategy to be. I don't know what point I wanna be at in 15, 20, 30 years. Then I think in those cases, it's you can have a tactic that's guided towards that as well, which is you can select a opportunity that exposes you to a bunch of different things. like And so I think that there's always right. that opportunity to think, you know, both strategically and tactically and, um, you know, and to, to, to again, marry them. So the, the one that's, you know, maybe a little bit more military specific is that I think that there is this, um, you know, I think it applies to officers and enlisted um, maybe officers more often, but there are, Often a lack of these like specific skills that are applicable to what you're going to go do. And um, I think that there is this desire to want to um, bring your general skills, you know, to bear. And I think that there's like, you know, a power and a limitation to that. I think that the power is that there are a lot of businesses and companies in their mature phase who value... Um, the maturity the careful decision-making the thoughtfulness um, the managerial capabilities and qualities that officers often have developed um, but I think if you want to succeed in you know in a, an early stage or a startup context or as an entrepreneur I think that you have to force yourself to see that often those general abilities are not uh, so obviously helpful um, at that stage in, in sort of like business building, and I think you have to like push yourself to figure out like what am, what can I learn and specialize in and know about and how can I add value um, to the extent you want to succeed in you know those areas. And so you know that maybe um, attaches again to that idea of like yeah. not being fearful that you can become a specialist in something you know pretty quickly, which. For what it's worth, I do think is an ability um, often for for veterans, which is the ability to like learn things to the necessarily necessary level, um, you know, quite quickly, and so try to bring that to bear.
0: Andy, thank you so much for spending this time with uh, with Frontline Founders podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. No, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.